Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yo, welcome in to the House of L podcast. I am the L of the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Thank you so much for hanging out and listening to the pod. I'm excited for today's episode because today's episode is one of the people in the business that I have known the longest and he continues to reinvent himself. I'll explain in a second. Our podcast is brought to you by the fine folks over at Mazda of Orland Park, ZoomZoomNation.com. If you are even thinking about going to buy a car, you should go buy a car from them. And when you talk with the folks over there and and ask for Eric, be like, hey, Eric, man, I heard that you were down with the House of L podcast and you're down with White Sox and go see the White Sox car. There's a White Sox car out there. At Ma- I'm not kidding you. I'm 100% serious. There's a White Sox car at Mazda of Orland Park, and you can go see it. ZoomZoomNation.com. Jay Zawoski has been busy over the last 18 months because he has been writing a book, a book that has been a labor of love for him. And I I knew that I wanted to have him on the podcast as he was writing the book. And it's going to be out here now. Jay wrote a book, and if you haven't ordered it yet, you should. It's called The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks. Dave Bolin wrote the foreword for Jay. This is a pretty big moment. Like a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, a few guys at the score have written books. Terry's book, which I highly recommend, Score of a Lifetime, I highly recommend that you read that book. A couple other people have written books too. I might write a book one day, who knows. I I will say that Jay made me feel more confident if I ever am going to put pen to paper. But he has been working. I, I was actually, I actually was at his house the day that he finished. I don't know why. Oh, well, yes, I do. I was dropping off a comic book for his daughter, Addie. That's right. I was trying to uh, get her to read Ironheart by Eve Ewing, a Chicagoan. Actually, I should probably try and see if I can get Eve on the podcast. I I feel like she's too famous to do my podcast, but whatever. I wanted Addie to read Ironheart, so I dropped Ironheart over at at Jay's house and he was freaking out because he was like just about to finish the thing. And I guess his wife 
Hope and Addie were out of the house, and I was like in his way. I think he was watching Star Wars when I walked in. And he was just fried, and he's like, I got to get this thing done. And then by the end of the day, I think he had finished all the things that he needed to get finished. If you know a, a good independent bookstore, Jay would prefer that you go get his book from there. But wherever you get his book, and he'll explain like inside of this, this sit down that we have where you can get it. Some of the places that you can get the book that are supporting him. But I'm happy. I'm happy for him that he got to write about a subject that he cares dearly about. And that's the history of the Blackhawks. That's not the only thing that we talked about. We talked about a lot. We talked about radio because he's been he's been at the score almost as long as I have. So we have seen some stuff. So we talked about the things that we have seen. If you're an old school scorehead, you will enjoy some of the stories that we tell, some of our time of producing back in the day. And I also wanted to pick his brain about like what makes a good host, what makes a good producer. And he came through. He's one of the most likable guys that's ever worked at the score. And I I don't. I don't think that you would find anyone who has worked there that would disagree with that statement. I'm glad that he is coming out of the shadows a little bit over the last few years. It has been one of uh, it has been a point of tension between me and Jay because I'm always like, Jay, you should be doing stuff because you're really good. And he's like, leave me alone. So. I'm glad that he is doing that now because people get to see that he's a, a really good broadcaster and and you'll find out that he's a really good storyteller too in in this book that he has written. So go get Jay's book. And if you're not convinced about getting Jay's book, talk to me after you listen to this interview. This is me and Jay Zawoski. I appreciate you doing this, man. Like there's a lot of different avenues I want to go down with you. Yeah, there's no uh, no path I won't I will not go down. So whatever you're whatever you're whatever whatever you want to do. All right, cool. Well, I, let's let's start with the book. Quite honestly, I I want to know what made you go, man. You know what? I could write a book. I don't know if I don't know if I've even gotten to that point yet. To be honest with you, I'm, I literally have it in my hands. It's right next to me. I've mailed out a hundred something copies of it to people who have ordered it. I've written it, I've edited it, I've read it five times, and it still doesn't truly feel real to me. Uh, you know, when you're writing the book, it, it took me back to being in school and working on a project, because this is basically 50 essays. That's what the book is. So instead of writing a novel where I'm following a story and closing plot holes and things like that, I've just, I'm moving from story to story to story. So I've got all these Word documents on my computer. I'm dealing with an editor. They're giving me feedback, but it's weird. It's almost like, and maybe you get this too. When we see other people do what we do, it seems a lot more significant. And then when you do it yourself, you're like, it's not a big deal. Eh, It's just, you know, it's just, eh, it's just a book. You know, I just, I don't know if it's my, uh, and this is something I struggle with a lot is my imposter syndrome, uh, which is a big thing for me, but uh, it just, it still doesn't really feel real. Even holding the book in my hands, 
there's my name right there. I signed a bunch of them. It's like, yeah, it just, it still does not feel like I am a published author. It's very strange. You're right. Like I, I went through some of that with television where I was like, oh, I, I feel like I could do that maybe. And then you get there and like, oh, absolutely. I could do that. But to me, I, I feel like because of the academic element of writing a book, like my dad wrote a book on DuSable and I remember what it was like for him back in those days, like doing all the research. But that was in the 90s when he he was literally having to go to libraries and historical sites to do all of this stuff. A lot of the information for for your book is is firsthand because you you've delved into a lot of hockey things and you're doing interviews and you know the subject matter so well with the advent of the the internet i feel like it's a little bit easier to do that part of the job but then one has to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard what right. was what was the process like in in building the the 50 essays that you were doing so for me i felt like there has i know for a fact there's already been so much written about Bobby Hall and Stan Makita and Tony Esposito and all those old players that have been around Chicago sports lore forever. And I want to do something new with that stuff. That was sort of my, uh, in terms of my approach on the older stuff. Like I just wanted to make sure that someone reading this book was going to learn something new. So that was sort of the avenue I took with the old guys. So that took a little more research than looking up their stats and saying, here's their place in history. And this is how they were as a player. I had to go back and dig and find some stories. I read a bunch of uh, autobiographies of Stan Makita, Bobby Hull, uh, Keith Magnuson, and I was sort of searching those stories for, um, you know, little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anecdotes about their career or about their life and about sort of what made them tick. And that's sort of the approach that I took throughout this process with the older guys. The newer guys, it was sort of reminding people, because I, at the time of writing, so I wrote this last winter, I started like really, it, it took probably t in total a year, but I'm a procrastinator. So the last, you know, 35 chapters I wrote probably in the course of three months. So, so from, from, from concept to publishing a year, uh, from concept to completion was a year. Then it got published. I think it went to print in September. Okay. So I was done in December of 19. That's when I finished the book. So then it went to print in September. So leading up to it actually worked out kind of well because the Hawks were eliminated right before it was about to go to print. They lost to Vegas. So I was able to update some of the numbers on Corey Crawford and some of the current guys that I needed to update. And then it was ready to go. So I wrote this almost a calendar year ago, which is crazy. So people are like, what was your favorite chapter to write? It's like, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> it was, uh, and I'll tell you the hardest one to write was about the, Arthur Wirtz uh, taking over the Blackhawks with James Norris and how that whole exchange of ownership went and Norris and Wirtz's relationship. And that would eventually turn into Norris with Detroit and the Wirtz is in Chicago. And that whole thing, that should be a movie. The story of the Wirtz family should be a movie because it's incredible. Like Arthur Wirtz was just the son of a police officer and he was a self-made guy. It was all real estate. And then he got into, you know, and some things were not necessarily legal. But he made his fortune, as a lot of people did in that era. And it's just, it's a fascinating story. But there was so much minutia and so little written about it. That was really the hard part. It was like, 
Then Arthur Words and James Norris bought the team, dot, dot, dot. And that's like the whole thing. Like, well, wait a minute. There's got to be a lot more to it than that. So finding that past history was challenging. Do you think that that's something that you might explore to write? Since you're saying someone should write it, maybe you write it. No. No? No. <laughs> no it's, it's a grind, man. Writing a book was, was I don't want to say it was harder than I thought, but it was, it was tough. It was a grind. And I have a, like a, an attention span issue. So I think having to write a novel on one subject, even if it was about me, would be difficult, right? Let alone somebody else, someone who I've never met, someone who I won't be able to talk to, and we'll all be sort of connecting dots throughout like little newspaper articles from years ago and things like that. That that would be difficult for me to sort of stay on track and keep it brief. It'd probably end up being 5,000 pages because I'm bad at editing unnecessary detail. Do you have a favorite author? Um... It sort of changes. Uh, I've been really into Vonnegut in my older years. Uh, I started reading Hemingway because uh, it, but it depressed me. Like it's just sure. it's salt. So and I like I seek out sad media. <laughs> Give me the saddest song you can find, the saddest movie you can find. But I read A Farewell to Arms. Uh, I I think I had to Jesus, read it in high Jay. And I just you know in high school you're like what just plowing through like okay I get the idea. I actually sat down and read A Farewell to Arms, and, and, and my wife, Hope, will tell you this. I finished it, and I just threw it across the room. <laughs> like, that makes no, sense. I'm done. This is, not in, this is not fun. I don't like this. This is not bringing me joy. There's to be some sort of smile during this whole process, but no, there's none. But I, I, was, I was just wondering if, if in your writing, would anyone be able to see influences? I think in my writing, people will hear me talking. That's, That's good. I think I, I think I think I write conversationally because that's just kind of how I organize my thoughts is I sort of speak them on the paper, if that makes sense. If anything I've ever written for 670, the score, I think, is read very conversationally. And I've had some not clashes that sound, but I've had some disagreements with Cody Westerland, who's our web guy. Like, don't change my words here. I'm saying something very specific. Like, I want it to be said this way because this is how I would say it. Right. And he's like, okay, cool. Now I understand, you know, and maybe to me, it makes more sense than it does to the ordinary reader. But I think that I do write in a pretty conversational manner. And I did for this book, they said like, look, some people are going to be buying the book because it's your name on it, not just because it's about the Blackhawks. So try to include some personal stuff in there too. So I did that too, uh, with a lot of, there are a lot of sidebars. There's one about the birth of my daughter and like me and my wife's relationship. We started dating by going to Hawks games you know, going to games with my dad as a kid where like the seed was planted. So there is some personal stuff in there as well. But I think my writing style, I write in the style of Jay Zawoski talk. That's that's good. Like that's I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, it's just I don't know. I don't know how else to do it. Would it be fair to say. In the last five years, you have explored being in the spotlight more. Because since I've known you, you've been very comfortable being in the background. And I, I, I will tell you that I've been fighting a battle to be like, Jay, come on into the light. You got something to, to tell the people. And I feel like in the last five years, whether it's you doing the I'm Fat podcast or talking more on the score, wanting to host more, now this book and the Gimme Country stuff, I feel like you're stepping into that spotlight more. What's comfortable about these things for me is they're on my own terms. You know, I, I'm I'm being who I am. I, I did when the Hawks were really good. I dabbled in some TV 
when they needed me around the playoffs, they wanted some in-station visits and that was really fun, but that is not me, you know, like being a, a, a TV commentator where in short term thoughts, you know, can, I, I like to be detailed in my conversation. That's why I think podcasts are like the perfect Avenue for me because I can stretch my legs. I can tell a story. I'm not worried about time, not worried about talking too long. Even sometimes on the radio, we have to think about that, right? Like for if sure. it's, we're up against commercial breaks, so I can't make this point too long or, you know, put too much emphasis on something because I don't want it to get boring for the 40 or 50% of the people who may not be interested. If you're choosing to listen to my podcast, you, you are signing the contract, so to speak, that you are going to listen to an hour of me and James talking about hockey and you're there for it. So I feel like when I'm doing that or me and Rick doing the I'm fat podcast with that agreement with the listener, I feel so much more comfortable that way because I know they're there to hear what I'm, what we're doing. And that gives me some freedom to be myself and really make it what I want it to be. So do you think that you found, you found what your kind of on air persona is in that time frame, like who you are when the microphone is cracked? I think so. I think I got a lot of that too when I was working with Spiegel and Parkins. That show sort of let us all stretch our legs a little bit, open up the mic, sort of a fr- open mic policy. And Bernstein has that too, but we have so many guests and he's, you know, it's a shorter show, so we don't really have the time to really stretch our legs on things. But I feel like that's really sort of where I found, uh, and I think that probably coincides with me hitting my stride as a podcaster too was that the timing of that show and that was probably year three of the madhouse podcast where james and i were really starting to find our legs that's where rick and i started growing our chemistry working together every day side by side on that show on the air and off we started to find our chemistry together that's where i'm fat was born so i think that time frame of my life is probably where i hit my stride in terms of you know being able to do a broadcast with confidence, without the nerves. I, I feel like now I'm at the point where I can do any interview, any TV show, any radio show with zero nerves. And it took a long time to get there. Of course, there's going to be the butterflies before a big moment, right? But I, I'm, I feel for the first time in my life, over the last two or three years, I've gotten way more comfortable in my own skin. And I trust that people want to hear what I have to say. What were you nervous about? Um... It's a good question. I, I think you start to there's I, here's something I had to. Well, I mean, there's always someone better than you, right? And I think a part of me felt that pressure in terms of talking about hockey. Where for a while I'm like, well, I have to on our podcast. I have to give analytics because that's that's the rage, and that will prove to people that I know what I'm talking about. Hmm. But that's just not. I believe in it and I know what it means. I know what it represents, but I, to me, that's not what I, when I consume sports, I'm not looking at the zone starts and I'm watching a guy play. And of course you use those uh, statistics as guidelines and to use them as sort of a verifier of what you're seeing. But that to me, that wasn't me to go over the stats of the game. And, you know, Alex to had a 52% Corsi. Okay. I think the people that care about that will find it. But I was feeling this pressure to try to to be all things to all people instead of just doing the show, giving my opinion and and basically having fun with it. And once I sort of learned, like, look, I don't have to be the best hockey guy, period. I'm not going to be. There's plenty of people that know more about hockey and the Blackhawks than I do. And when I learned to be OK with that, 
I think is when I got more comfortable. It was just sort of this pressure I was, and no one was putting the pressure on me. It was self-imposed pressure of, look, if I'm going to claim to have the best hockey podcast, hmm. I've got to be the best and smartest hockey guy in the world. And that's impossible. That's something I can never chase. And I could never do like there's people in this town who, you know, like Sam Fells, who you t- who you've talked to many times, like he knows the X's and O's better than I do. But what I have that Sam doesn't is I have the behind the scenes access. I've got sources in the team that give me stuff so I can speak from that base of knowledge. So everyone has something different to bring to the table. When I learned to trust what I have to provide my content, I feel like that's when I got the most confident. And that's when I got that's truly when I became the best broadcaster i've been because i was just being myself it's weird because i i talk to my students all the time about the the idea of prep and when they start out and it's it's so great like as we're recording this i'm actually like having a breakthrough with my students where they don't understand what i'm having them do at the beginning of the quarter where i'm like you're gonna log this game you're gonna log every play of this game And now they understand that the reason that I had them logging games is because when I asked them to do shows, they now have the information and they remember, oh, that was a big play. I want to talk about that. They now have the the beginnings of taking notes in, in game logging. And honestly, if they do work in our industry, especially on the television side, they're going to have to do that anyway. So I'm, I'm trying to give them a skill. I I'd love to know, as someone who works as a producer and as a host and as a podcaster, what's your preparation like when you're getting ready to break down a Blackhawks game? What goes into you getting comfortable with the subject matter? So if I'm doing a post-game style podcast, I think that always during the game, I'm sitting there with a notepad or at least my notes open on my phone. Because you're right, I think even the process of writing it helps you know it. Yes. You know, just putting the words to paper. And here's even a weird thing where you write something and maybe you made a letter weird or you know, you didn't dot an I or you didn't cross a T correctly. Something about the visual of that, you'll know where that is. You know where to find it, right? So just you're talking about documenting a play or a, a, a quarter of a football game, right? You'll remember something you wrote about that third and 10 that went for a loss of three. Something about that you'll remember writing and you'll know where to find it. I I think that just for me, the physical act of writing is what helps me remember things. If I've, I have done the, just watch the game and go do a post game. And I can, I feel less prepared. And literally the only difference is I did not take a note in the moment of something I wanted to talk about. So I have in my phone here, I've got notes from the entire season of the Hawks with just little observations about the game. And I think if I looked back on them now, they might not make sense at all. But in those moments right after the game, I can recall those things. And it also helps me stay organized, right? Like I, I don't want to forget to get to something that maybe if it happened in the first period and 50 things have happened since then, if it's on paper or on my phone, I can go back and remember, oh, but let's not forget this meaningful thing that happened 60 minutes ago. That's important, too. So to me, that's what I do. I, I just keep notes. And then for bigger term things, like when we had Sam Bowman on last week, James and I spent an hour on the phone and collaborating on a Google Doc 
on our outline for the interview. Like these are the things we can't miss sort of prioritizing things, right. And categorizing things. And just to have that accountability next to you is helpful because, and I'm sure you, you know this better than I do, but when you interview a big name, you don't want to miss anything because you feel a responsibility to your audience to not hold them accountable. But look, if I'm going to be critical of this guy a hundred times a year on my podcast, I can't now have him on and forget to say all the things I was critical about. Of course, Stan Bowman spends an hour with us. He hangs up and I think of 10 things I didn't get to, sure. which is natural. But I, I, I just think the, the art of note-taking is a lost art. And when I was teaching at Lewis and at uh, IMS, I was sort of the same message I was giving the students. Paper and pen are good. Like they're, they're your friends. <laughs> you don't have to be afraid of it. And just ha it's just a second, it's a second way of imprinting a moment in your mind by writing it, however you do it, even if it is digitally. Just putting it out there on paper and, and being able to go back and reference it that to me has been a super helpful tool. And the more I do it, the more comfortable I feel. It's amazing that I gave them the option. I, I said to them, if you want to type all of this stuff in, well, that's okay. Like, that's fine. And they've all chosen to do it by hand because there's data. There's data that yeah. writing stuff down actually makes it easier for you to remember these things. But it's been so encouraging to see them dive into it and really get it and now like now that they've done so we've been doing podcasts over the last few weeks and now that they're they're seeing the amount of information that they have available to them where when I first throw the idea of them doing three minutes on a subject and they're terrified yeah and this last round of of pods that we did they could have done 10 minutes I had them do the the Bears Rams game on Monday night they could have done 10 minutes on it. And I'm like, see, like you were prepared. You were so prepared for this that that it's it's wonderful. And I know that you spent a lot of time teaching. So what what did that do for you? I think it's what you're talking about, seeing the fruits of your labor as a teacher is really satisfying because not only are you literally educating someone how to do the job, it's also verifying that you know what the hell you're talking about. Like when you see like, well, here's what I think is the right thing to do. Because when you're a teacher, unless you've gone to school for it, you don't really know what you're doing. Like an adjunct professor, my first time, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm just going <laughs> to tell you what I think I know. And let's see what happens. Right. So then you do that and it works. And you're like, I know stuff like to me, that was that was rewarding. And, and, and that fact and my favorite part of teaching, especially radio, is. You know, you, t you warn them about that first show. Like, it's going to be tough. Like, you've got to be prepared. You can't. <laughs> I'm telling you. Oh, my you God. Want, like, You're so like, right on. Like, you want a page per minute, <laughs> you know, because you're going to get in there and you're going to think you've got everything. And then you're going to read your sheet and you're going to be done. And it's going to be five minutes. And I, I preach that. I show them my prep notes for a show. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the first show goes on. Hey, uh, welcome to uh, WLRA. This is uh, Flyers Talk, uh, Lewis University, and the Bears. They lost to the Rams, and, and Matt Nagy's play calling wasn't very good. What'd you think? Yeah, I didn't think it was very good either. And crickets. Like, what are you going to talk about? What are you actually going to talk about? So to see the, uh, I, I think part part of what's satisfying about that too is there's there's a percentage of people that think 
what we do is easy. Yeah. Like you just go and talk sports all day. Like, try it. Try like, sit down in front of a mic by yourself and be interesting for an hour or two hours or three hours. I start with go- a minute here. Yeah. Here's a microphone. I, and my it's my favorite exercise to do with my class. First day. All right. I need a volunteer. Boom. Hand goes up. I said, pick yeah. pick whatever subject you want. You talk about whatever you want, but do it for a minute. And then I put the stopwatch on. No one ever makes it that first day because they don't have the concept of how long a minute is that you have to program with your thoughts. And so I get really frustrated with people. And there are some people that they're they're lay people that love sports that 100 percent could do a talk show if properly trained. But if you don't realize the work that goes into doing a talk show, you will get embarrassed immediately when you open up a microphone to talk about whatever it is that you think you know. I'll never forget my first time on the score. Um, So this was 2009 playoffs. So the Hawks are facing the Calgary Flames, and Mitch is like, go on. He's like, I need you to do a post-game show. That was the first time I'd been on the air since I was at Lewis in 2001. I graduated January 01, so it was probably the first time I'd been on the air since December of 2000. In in any way, aside from cracking the mic occasionally on a show. So I'm ready, man. I've got legal pads. I've got all the stats printed out. I've got Murph's coffee. I literally used Murph's coffee table and put it next to me (laughs) in the studio, right? (laughs) So I'm getting the countdown. All right, Jay, 10 seconds. I'm just feeling my face is like getting hot. Like, oh my God. All right, what am I going to do? So start looking at my notes. And I swear to God, like everything turned to Greek. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't words anymore. So I just started and I was floundering, man. I was drowning. And somehow by God's will, Jason Goff was listening and just knew I got a call. (laughs) So he calls in. And he just, he saved me. He's like, Jay, what did you see? So I'm like, here's what I saw. So we just start having a conversation, right? And he stayed on for five or six minutes in that first segment. And he said, all right, Jay, you got this. And like just hearing those words and having him, he didn't even say it, but he just, he called me and was like, and got it out of me. He's like, you know what you have to do. Remember what you have to do. Remember your training. You know, it's like a Jedi. And, and Jason reminded me that i knew what the hell i was talking about and that was the and i think from that moment i felt pretty comfortable but the panic of that first on-air shift dude i remember that like it was yesterday i like i was seriously my face was flushed the room was closing in on me and there was part of me that was like run just run, just get out like, <laughs> just, like don't, don't put jt the brick on it'll be fine you know <laughs> no, no one's gonna notice so man Jason, I remember that I did a thing with Jeff Agris in the Sun Times last year, and I told that story in there too because that was the point. That was the moment for me. Was that dude saving me? And if he had not been listening in that moment, who knows what would have happened, right? Maybe the whole show is a total disaster. I'm never asked to host again, and there's no podcast, there's no whatever. But if not for him hearing me in those moments, those moments struggling, uh, who knows? So that was that was a huge moment, and that's something I'll never forget from him. That was. 
and look to him it was probably like oh my guy's having a having trouble let me call yeah. up and help him out. what has it been it's been 11 years since that happened and i still think about it every day that's great and that's a yeah. really really wonderful story and it speaks to the type of person that, that jason and the type of broadcaster that jason goff is what was your biggest or what is your biggest victory as a producer oh man there's been a lot i have to say i've been doing it for so long but the first thing i thought of when you asked me that question and this was early on when daryl kyle died it was a different era of radio right so for those that don't know what year was that like 90 99 yeah probably whatever it was early 90 early 2000s late 90s whatever it was that was the wild west of sports producing no doubt that was you call hotel rooms uh can i talk to Derek jeter sure let me connect you and the hotel operator would connect you to Derek jeter's room for real and that was an expected part of the day was you would play hotel roulette and you would get a guest on okay so put put yourself when hearing this story in that era of production so we get news that the Cubs game has been canceled for whatever reason. It's still a big mystery. I don't think Joe Girardi had come out and made the announcement for the Cubs yet about the loss in the Cardinals family. And that's all they said at the time. And this is pre-social media for the most part. So a caller calls in and gives us a tip like, hey, there's a rumor they saw, you know, uh, a, a, a cart coming out of the hotel or the Cardinals staying. Like, all right, so... I'm trying to put all the pieces together, but I called the coroner, the Cook County coroner. I'm like, hey, I'm calling from CBS radio. That was always a great trick, too. Great. The CBS it was radio. the truth. It was the truth. I was calling from CBS radio. We're having reports that there was a, a death on the St. Louis Cardinals organization. And, and the coroner's like, yeah, it was Daryl Kyle. <laughs> he just said it like he just said it over the phone. Wow. I'm like, so you're confirmed. I'm like, what's your name, sir? What's your position? Yeah, gave me all the stuff. He's like, yeah, Daryl Kyle is dead. And that was, and I, so that was back when George often was, I think he was hosting. And I didn't, I'm like, George, this is the information I have. Like, I don't know how to break it. And George's like, are you sure this is who you talked to? What number did you call? Yes, yes, yes. This is all of it. And they went live with it and it was right. And to me, that was like, Holy, that was the first big story that I played a role in breaking. We were the first people to have that story, that that's what it was. And it's not a, it's nothing to celebrate, but it was a huge story that was breaking in the moment. And that sort of trained me on how to react in a breaking news moment. Like think outside the box. Like, what are you not thinking of here? Like, who's the guest you're not calling? Who's the, what's the angle that you need to get the answer that's not typical? You know, your instinct would be call the Cardinals PR and ask what's going on. Well, they're not going to tell you anything. Not a right? damn thing. Right. And Cubs PR wouldn't tell you anything either. So what's the next step? Call the hotel. Okay. Hotel didn't tell you anything. What's next? What's next? And even if it's a trade or a whatever it might be, finding the angles outside of the norm, I think that's something I learned in that moment was, all right, how do we verify this? What can we do? And I'm like, the corner? Can I, can I do that? Like, I don't know. Let's pick up the phone and try. And it worked. So that's just sort of, that's sort of informed the way I've produced is worst case scenario is someone tells you to, to F off or it's none of your business or they say, no, I'm sorry. I can't help you. And you're back to the drawing board, but at least you took the shot. At least you tried. And I think that to me, that was, instead of asking, can I, 
I would just do it. And if it didn't work, it didn't work, but at least the effort was made. And more often than not, taking that out of the box approach has worked because you're taught for the most part, talking to people who don't deal with media. So they're not worried about protecting anything. If that makes sense. Like the coroner doesn't, I don't know, like, yeah, he's dead. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have the Cardinals to protect or the Cubs to protect, or it was sort of a different thing. So trying to find that angle, I think is, uh, is a lesson learned from there. And it's something I've used a lot. Is, is there something on the flip side of that, a negative of a day where you walked away from the job going, man, I, I fucked that up. Like I, I screwed that up and we're not, we were not better because of me today. Uh, there was a day where me and Eric Beverly were producing the Mike North show and it was just a disaster on all ends. We had guests for Eric was the EP. I was the board op. I made a ton of mistakes on the board. Eric had a couple guests cancel. And at the end of it, we just looked at each other like we sucked and North was pissed. And that, that was honestly, that was the one time that North was truly pissed off at me and, and at Eric. Um, and then there were, there were days that sucked, but it wasn't totally my fault. Um, you know, they're like where a, a host would throw me a curveball that I wasn't ready for, or would sabotage an interview with Carlos Zambrano, or uh, you know, things like that. Things that are sort of unpredictable. And one thing I will say, and you know this too, working with Murph is a total adventure, a total roller coaster. But it trained me to be prepared for anything and everything. What could possibly go wrong? Have a plan for all of them. And I learned that from Murph. And when I started working for Mac and Speaks, they're like, dude, are you okay? I'm like, but yeah, I'm just preparing for all 15 things that might go wrong. Like, relax. Like, we're just doing a show. Like, it's sports. It's not a big deal. I almost had Stockholm Syndrome. Like, no, 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 Murph is the right way to do it. I've got to have 15 scenarios all planned out. And if X, if A and B happen, then C. And if A, B, and C happen, then D. And that was every day. And it was, and, and you know, I think m- my wife said it to me, too. Like, you were a different guy when you worked for him. Because you were just so on edge. Because at any moment, things could set him off. Abatacola tells a story all the time about playing the fake, or the old Folgers commercial that was five seconds longer than the other version. And Murph went off on him, on him a week later about it like working in that those conditions is tough but it did teach me you know how to consider everything that could possibly go wrong which is not a great place to be but i think i finally found a good balance of here are some things that could go wrong realistically and be prepared for them but let's not sweat every possible outcome yeah living in the place where you are preparing for every contingency like that is that's like my whole life. And so, yes, it is a a horrible, horrible way to live. And and yeah. you do learn that working with particular hosts. Do you think that there is a a type of host that you work best with? I think that um I would say I worked my best with uh Parkins because he is determined. He knows what he wants. He puts pressure on you, but not in an unreasonable way, right? It's like, why can't we get, you know, we're talking about the wire this week. Why can't we get Wood Harris on? Or why wouldn't we ask him to come on? Or we should get him. Or the whole idea of um, pick a player. 
Like you should be going, if you have the opportunity to talk to a player and get these questions answered, you should do it. That was challenging to me. So it kept me motivated. But at the same time, I felt like if things didn't happen, there wasn't an unreasonable consequence to it. I like to be pushed, but I also like to be trusted. Like with, with Bernstein, he has full faith in me. Whatever I say he'll do, but I also, I want feedback too. Like I say to him, with hockey, it's tough for me because I don't know how big the story is to most people, <laughs> right? Like, okay, to me, this feels really big, but do people like actually care? And sometimes I undersell it. Like, well, people couldn't possibly think it's as big of a deal as I do. And some people are like, no, no, this is a big thing. Okay, cool. Then let me get in hockey mode and do this. Uh, I need, I do need feedback. Like, what do you like? What guests do you like? What kind of fun topics do you like? So having feedback and having trust to me, that's the perfect mix. And I got that. I, me and you have not worked together a ton uh, in terms of like me being your producer one-on-one yeah. for, for an extended period of time. But I think that every time we've talked and, and you've been a mentor of mine for a long time, you are, you're that sort of sweet spot too. And, and there's been times where, you, where you've told me like, you know, you could have been better in this spot. And I will say yes. You know, and I'm also now at the point to, where I can, instead of getting defensive about something I've screwed up, I can just sort of acknowledge it and own it. And that's come with a lot of work, a lot of practice. Um, you know, I, I credit a lot of that to the, to the therapy I've been going to for what, five years now, um, that a criticism is not necessarily an attack and sort of do and learning how to take criticism is I've gotten better at that, but that was always hard for me because, and that was part of my, um, my stress was, I don't want to get yelled at. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get in, tr- like, I don't want anyone to be disappointed in me. And that's impossible to manage. Cause it's, this is a, I would say a, an executive producer's job is, is probably a position of, of more failures and successes. Cause you're shooting high. You're trying to get the best possible guest you can get on or the biggest name or whatever. And the higher you shoot, the less likely you are to succeed. Right? So dealing with that failure has been something I've had to deal with too. And realizing that when someone expresses disappointment in a segment or a guest or a phone line or whatever, it's not an attack on me. They're not blaming me for a bad phone line. They're not blaming me because a guest didn't come on. They're just expressing disappointment in general. And it's not necessarily about me. That's been an adjustment too. I feel like I've grown in, in this regard where I'm still a bit of a control freak when it comes to doing a show but because I feel like I'm prepared for a lot of contingencies, like my, my big thing is we play over mistakes. Like I think of it like the same way I do sports where sure, someone made an error. So what? Like we're, we get to hit next. So we're going to go hit. So let's just go hit. Right. And there's part of me that wonders, am I, am I doing, is there a benefit to me occasionally not losing my shit because that does no one any good, but applying more pressure in situations. And the good thing was what I love about that is like, I'll take Tony as an example. I never had to tell Tony a thing Mm -hmm. like he knew he knew when something didn't go the way that he had envisioned or the way that he thought I had envisioned it. And he would flog himself, you know, (laughs) like be like, I screwed that up. We won't screw that up again. 
And there's never really been any of that. But those reactions that we got, and it's, I think it's one of the differences. And, and you could, I'd love to get your opinion on this. When we were coming up as producers, it felt like a mistake was the end of the world because of how hosts were going to react. That you didn't want the wrath. You didn't want to be pulled into Norse office at NBC Tower and then have the, the blinds drawn because you knew that you were going to get yelled at. and you, you didn't want for Murph to yell at you. And I think that that, that level of that type of leadership is only good to a point. And I think that it, it can really handicap the creative process because you then become unwilling to take some risks or have fun in those moments when things don't go as well as you hope they would. That is spot on. And here's a good example. Everyone's heard the Ranji losing himself when a fart drop was played, right? It's spectacular. In the history of the score, there's probably been 750 million fart drops played, okay? But that particular one, I played during a Murph show. There's no piece of audio that airs without Murph's approval. But Murph had gone to the washroom because he knew it was update into break. I looked down the hall. I saw he was at the spot where he would not hear. There's a, there's a gap in the old NBC Tower where there was... From the door to the bathroom where there was no audio. And he was in that spot. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I hit it. And then Ranji lost his mind. I'm like, and so while I should have been cracking up at Ranji, I was freaking out that Murph's going to come back and say, what is he laughing at? What's that guy laughing at back there? Hey, what's what's, a, what's so funny at? back there, Ranji? That should have been a funny moment for everybody. But for me, I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, my God. That's absolute terror. He's going to find out. He's going to be pissed. He's going to fly off the handle. No, that, you're right. Like, I think there are moments where a blow up can, can be effective, but it has to be, first of all, it has to be blow up worthy, right? Like, oh, you, your cart didn't fire. You can't be pissed off at me because the cart didn't fire. That's not my fault, right? Or whatever, whatever happens. A caller's phone is bad. That's not my fault. You can't blame me for that. But if it's something that I've screwed up, repeatedly then by all means blow up uh, but i think back in the day you're right the, the wrath was always sort of lingering and i remember like one of my first shifts ever uh murph's partner is a guy i like so i'm not going to say his name but there was something wrong with the cart physically wrong with it where it wouldn't queue up but because i was new he, i didn't have his trust yet and the cart a couple times didn't work so he took the cart and threw it against the wall the cinder block walls and it just exploded in the wall and that like that was i was an idiot right it was my fault i had screwed it up and after it was proven that no there was an error with the cart he apologized and it moved on but it was like the smallest little thing like i didn't there's nothing i did there that was wrong i've every other cart you're playing in the show i did and it's working this cart is 75 years old. It's got a hundred old pieces of tape on it from when it was something else, right? That's how we used to have to do it. It's like old folks hour, by the way, right now. It is. Um, <laughs> but th those explosions are what I, I feared the most. And I've been that way my whole life. Like my mom was a, she was a ice out. She would ice me out. She would never yell at me, but
but it would be like three weeks would go by and she wouldn't talk to me. And I would say, mom, what did I do? Well, that laundry is still not put away. I'm like, really? It's been, you're, you haven't talked to me in three weeks. Cause I haven't put my laundry away. Like that was what I live with. So getting yelled at by a coach or a teacher or a, or a boss or whatever, that was foreign to me. And I hated it. I hated the, the isolation of that, the feeling of that. And I, I tried to do everything I could to avoid that at all costs. Now the industry has totally changed. I think people in general have changed too. I think people have gotten more perspective on life over the last probably seven or eight years. Uh, and it's not political at all. I think just, I think people have just gotten a little more understanding um, with the realities of what people are dealing with and things like that. People have just empathy has become, well, maybe it's gone down a little bit in recent years, but I don't know. It may, or maybe it's just a change in generation. Younger hosts are maybe a little more in tune with younger producers and just, they just know that that's not effective with this generation. That's something that uh, not to talk hockey, but it's what Stan Bowman said about Jeremy Cowan is, you know, that's why he likes him because you can't say to this generation of hockey player, you suck. You're terrible today. Be better tomorrow. Get out of my office. That doesn't fly anymore. I'm 42. If someone did that to me, if Mike North did that to me back in the day, I would know what he meant and I could get better from it. But young guys now, like that's for the most part, they want to, they want to know what they did wrong and they want to know how to fix it. So I think like a more hands-on and gentle approach is better for, you know, probably like 35 and under. I don't know. It's hard, kind of hard to put a number on it, but I think it's a good thing. Communication is never bad. What's a way that you see outside of what we just discussed that sports radio and you can put the podcasting world in here too, but sports radio has changed for the better over the la- over your tenure. Oh, it's very easy. Over my tenure, it's changed huge, and I give Dan and Terry a ton of credit for it. Uh, they, you talk about being demanding. They demanded more of their listeners. Don't call me up and tell me, hey, the McCaskies are cheap and the coach is a bum. Come with a thought have an idea, have some data or have a strongly formed opinion to back up what you're saying. Don't just call in and rant. I think the days of ranting sports radio, at least in Chicago are over. I hate when I hear rant radio, I it is the worst thing. I cringe because it feels manufactured and it's not in, it's not intelligent. We have so many resources now at our fingertips that it's very easy to form a calm, informed retort or argument about a topic without having to scream and yell about it. Sure, a Bears game ends, they look like crap, and you're irritated about it, by all means. But I think the day of the rant is over, and I think that's a good thing. I think that listeners and hosts have gotten smarter and more educated, and I think, I'm trying to remember, like when we started, when I started as a producer, we had like the baseball almanac. Mm-hmm. Like, what did this guy hit last year? Hang on, let me look it up. And you pull out this, you know, encyclopedia. Yes, like and you have to, like go back and find out. Like, okay, in 1987, you know, Kirk Gibson did this. Now everything's at your fingertips. So to give an ill-informed rant or just a a, a rant looking for reaction, I think that that's gone out the window, and that's the thing I I I appreciate the most, and I think that the audience also appreciates that that's over too. There was a time for it, right? 
times have changed. The sports fan is smarter. The sports host should be smarter to reflect the fan. And I think that too often we cater to still the lowest common denominator listener because I think the people that make decisions, it's not just us. I think it's all over. I think they hear from the vocal minority. Sure. So look, if I'm, if I'm in charge of programming station, I'm getting email telling me that this segment sucked and I I don't want to hear this guy talk about this anymore. You're, you get probably get a lot of that. It does probably influence the way you think your audience is hearing it. But I think the, our audience, they're not our callers, right? I don't think that callers represent what our audience is. And I think that all radio talk stations, be it sports or whatever, need to keep that in mind that your callers don't represent the people listening. And that to me is, and it, and I lose sight of it sometimes too, but I think for the most part, the vast majority of our audience are smart, educated sports fans that want to hear smart, educated sports talk. It's and that's, the, that's a shift from when I started. It's the, the rants of, of the, what I like to call 90 sports radio. Yes. Is yeah. it's the stereotype of what I, I thought I figured this out when I started covering a team that, while I was happy to be a part of the score and proud of the score as an entity, when I would go out into the world, it was like, oh, you're with those guys? Oh, like you're you're one of those screaming meatballs that that does radio. And that stereotype has it has lasted because anytime that sports radio is brought up in a um mass media sense whenever it is depicted it's Mm -hmm. always depicted as some angry guy like frothing at the mouth because and he's wearing a jersey and and you know what i mean like it's it's all of those things i look at it now as a golf bag and i think that there are still moments when you need to raise your voice but the difference is it used to be like every day. Like I remember when I first started that I was mad about a lot of stuff for no particular reason. I yeah. was mad about things. And I, I used to make the joke, especially when I was a lot younger, I'd make the joke that 40-year-old Lawrence hates 27-year-old Lawrence. And 27-year-old <laughs> Lawrence thinks that 40-year-old Lawrence is a sellout. And and I I understand where that growth kind of comes from. But now, if I need to get after a team, and it's usually not a player, but a team or an organization, that's a driver in your golf bag. You don't use your driver on every shot. What I imagine, what I hope is the case, I, I don't have the data to back this up, is that the audience understands too. And if you're just screaming all the time, when you really are passionate about something, the impact is lost. That 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 you don't have that, you're not able to connect with people the same way because it's the same clown act that you've been doing for weeks. And and if you can't change up the way your approach, if you can't change clubs and figure out a way to get people to react without it being screaming and yelling, then I'm not sure that you care enough about your craft to get better at it and say, well, here's some other ways that I could modulate my voice 
or data that I could use to yeah. to make the point that I want to want to make. And and it's it's I'm so glad that we're and I think that you're right. I think Dan and Terry are owed a great debt, specifically in Chicago, because in other markets there's still yeah that stuff is still going on. But specifically in, in the Chicago market, they offered a different path, and with Terry in particular. It's one of the reasons that I've always adored him as a talk show host. I don't know at the, the history of the score if there's ever been a man who was more free on the air than Terry Boards. It's a great way to put it. And trying to figure out, well, how can I, how can I do some of the stuff that Terry does? You can't. You can't do the stuff that Terry does because he's unique. Yes. But... That, that show not be recreated either, right? But the Despite everyone trying the template of can you do something to that allows you to be free on the air that allows you to be more you on the air. That's I, I think their their greatest contribution to sports radio, especially in Chicago, is you could just do it your way, like whatever way you like to do it. You don't have to do. The, the the 90s sports radio thing where it's just open up the phone lines and scream and yell at people for an hour. To me, it, it all goes back to sincerity, right? And saying what you believe, saying what you mean. And it doesn't mean that your opinion can't change. New information has come to light, dude, right? Things things change the way you think. Shout out to the dude. And that's that's fine. It like th- Changing your mind on something is not being a windsock. I, this is another thing I, I had to talk to my students about was don't play the, okay, you argue this side and I'll argue this side thing because it's fake as hell. It's going to sound fake as hell. And the one arguing what they don't believe is going to get, is going to sound bad because their argument's not as well fleshed out. It's not real. And then in two months, when this comes up again, you're going to forget what you said. Correct. You're going to forget what your opinion was, right? If you're always sincere, you're never going to get caught in a lie, right? And I, I, I say this to my daughter. I say, if you never, if you don't lie to us, you're never going to be in as much trouble as you can be. Like, we know you're going to make mistakes. We know you're going to say things and do things that are wrong. But if you lie about it, then you're doubling down on it, right? And I know it's, it's sort of different, but it's kind of the same thing. Like, honesty is such a huge thing. And I think an audience, a sports radio audience, especially one as smart as ours, can sniff out what's fake and what's real. And that's why there have been successful personalities that have tried on our station and and it's failed because the score is different. Right. And I know it sounds like I'm a a waving the pom-poms or whatever, but it really is different. The score is a unique place and it's not like it used to be where it was really sort of a tight knit us against the world sort of a feel. I was happy to be there for the tr- the tail end of that. I got to experience it a little bit. But there's still a different vibe to the score and every other station I've ever been around. And now that we're all sort of smushed together in Prudential, I get to see other stations operating. And it, it does feel like, not in a bad way, but it's the score and it's everybody else. We We are clinging to the last fragments of independent radio as much as we can. And I think that our defiance against what you described as the depiction of sports radio, the fact that we still 
cling to what made the score the score is what keeps the station great and it's why we need to keep the people that were there back then still part of things i think and i know there's so few of us left but i think the spirit of the score is still what it should be i was having a conversation with ostrowski about this um joe is probably like my most trusted radio ally so we because you know he was my ep for so long yeah. that i'm used to just bouncing ideas off him just texting him stupid stuff in the middle of the day joe is just he's a great barometer for to me that he's a programmer i me. agree like to, joe joe's radio instincts are as strong as anybody i know i would agree with you wholeheartedly and i was talking to him about how sports radio has changed overall and why like because he he would ask me like you've had these opportunities to go do other stuff like did you really ever think about leaving and yeah there have been moments where i've been like you know what i've had enough of this i'm gonna move on and go do television or i'm gonna do podcasting more often or whatever it was the thing that i still love about the score when I talk to different entities around the country or even some locally, still one of the the only places where you can kind of do you where there isn't. And people think like, as we're recording this, I'm sitting behind a banner that says, you know, (laughs) Cubs radio or whatever. Um, And they'd be shocked at at least my experience. I have never felt the weight of the Cubs on my show. Those guys in this, this particular group of people that run the Cubs now, not once have I ever heard a complaint. Have I ever heard you can't say this, even though we are the flagship station for the Cubs. And that that is, and, and I will tell you that with the White Sox, there was some of that where there was some there was some push and then we would ultimately push back and be like, no, we'll say what we want. And it's probably better for you that we do say what we want. But I think that there's still tremendous value in what it is that we're trying to do as a radio station. And the more and more places that that end up merging or the more and more places that I talk to people that are working at these these shops, I go, oh, no, like you're limited. You're limited because of the relationship that you have with a team or the NFL or whomever and it keeps you from doing the thing that you want to do. And now I feel that most, not all, but most hosts are responsible enough to know where the line is. Like We all have our own different kind of subjective morality, but there's a line when it comes to criticizing teams or players or owners or whatever. And I think most hosts know where that line is and they can walk it right up to that line and let the listener decide in the places where it's decided for you. I, I struggle because there aren't a lot of places for people who want to do this and try to do it. Well, to the, the number of places where you can do it this way is shrinking. Yeah. It's shrinking a lot. And it's, it's definitely, t- and you're right about that. Like the only change I have felt since the Cubs have come to our station is access. Yes. We have more access to them now, but that as far as, don't say this don't even not directly from them like from from management we've never heard you know don't be too hard on crane kenny or the rickets or whatever nope it's it's fair game and i think 
when you when you hire a big boy staff, Theo Epstein at the top of it, you know, and and, and down the line, they Theo Epstein to him we are nothing. Correct. <laughs> like, like okay, this little sports radio station is talking bad about me. Fine, I can deal with that. But there have been other teams that one of my you talk about the moments that you remember is I got in a shouting match with a uh, PR person from another team in town in the middle of the Under Armour store downtown. And the conversation ended with me saying to them, at the end of the day, you need us a hell of a lot more than we need you. And there was a pause and he said, you're right. And that was the end of the conversation. So that was a, that was a spike the football moment. Like, you know me, like I don't get fired up a lot. I was in an Under Armour store screaming into my phone <laughs> at a PR exec. Like, because they were mad that the GM was being asked questions the GM should be asked. I got, I, I had to navigate some stuff. <laughs> um, I actually had to navigate quite a bit of stuff. But just this last season, I got a text message from a higher up from someone about something that Herb had said. And it's like, oh, oh, you know, he 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 really is going. If something Herb had said on Twitter, where he, he's just he's just crazy on Twitter, and so I said, well, that's the thing. I I'm the diplomat, so you can <laughs> you can yell at me all you want. It's I'm not going to ask him to change. And I told this person, I said, the thing about him is he loves this thing that you're mad about so much he is also going to be your biggest ally if you get it right yep and then the person was like that makes sense and then stopped and those those conversations are between i i do think that we could use more of those conversations i think they're few and far between but it is absolutely like when i look out in the sports talk landscape and the content creation landscape, it, one of the things I worry about is the, the ability, the, the opportunity to be free, which makes me love the podcasting world mm-hmm. more and more because with house of L, like I'm, I only, I'm the CEO of house of L. I get to decide what, what the content is going to be like. You jumped into the podcasting world I still don't think, even though there are some people would argue this, I still don't think it's oversaturated. But you jumped into this this market long before people were really, really doing podcasts. Mm-hmm. What made you say that this was a way that you wanted to communicate? Because Chicago hockey fans wanted a place where they could have their sport respected like the others in town. And the score was not giving that to them. And I don't know if that was the right or wrong thing to do, but I think there's this assumption that people don't care about the minutia of hockey and they probably don't as much as they do about other sports. But I also feel like this is a separate conversation. The score dictates what people care about. I think we've proven that over the years is we can steer uh, public opinion on what sports matter or what don't. Uh, but I thought there was a huge void in the, in the market for, educated long form in-depth hockey breakdown and uh sure there were some there were some hawks podcasts that were a little bit on the fringes right it was 
Hawks fans or bloggers or whatever, that they would do their own thing. And it would be three hours long of inside jokes and whatever. But as far as a professional, a professionally produced, uh, something that sounded like radio, that was totally lacking. Um, I saw, you know, the other station in town this year started a weekly hockey show. I don't know why that hasn't been a thing at the score since the Hawks got relevant. I just, I just don't. I think an hour a week of talking to a player and then 40 minutes of breakdown of the week before, I don't know what that's, I don't think you're going to lose an audience there. So that void was there for me. And uh, I felt like I was the right person to fill it because I had just come off the heels of covering three Stanley cups, being on the air after each cup was won. Uh, and like we talked about earlier, being on TV after many of, or before many of those games, after many of those games, my, my hockey, um, Q rating was very high at that point, probably higher then than it was now, just because the Hawks were higher in, on, in the spotlight than they are now. But um, I just felt like it was a perfect opportunity. I had a good partner in James, who's, you know, one of the easiest dudes to work with. I know he's always prepared. He always comes with good stuff. We don't always agree. And to me, that's a perfect combination. But he's also not a guy who's going to be pissed off for the sake of being pissed off, which is something I was trying to avoid and did. And uh, you talked about how you're the, what'd you say? You're the CEO of uh, the house of L podcast. I am I literally am. last week incorporated my podcasts. Yay. So I am literally the <laughs> CEO of madhouse podcasts, LLC. That is you're looking at them. So that was a little strange too, to go open up like a business account and you know, you preach into the choir. Pressure. Yeah. Like learning the difference, but like you're an LLC, I'm an S corp. And and dealing with some of that stuff, it's so, it's so weird because it literally happened like inside my negotiations with Mitch, where he's like, "Oh yeah, like we want to do digital stuff and and we want to bring House of L." I was like, "Oh no 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 no, that's a different conversation." <laughs> like you're talking with Lawrence Holmes, the talk show host who works for you. Lawrence Holmes, the CEO of House of L, he's not a, a part of this conversation. Like that's a whole different ball game. That we're talking about. So that's how I ended up doing the Loho Daily podcast. Because I was like, no, like you're not gonna get the rights to all of my content. Like that's that that's mine. And we can figure out a way to and we have, like, we can share. Like I'm okay with sharing content. Like if there's something great that I do on House of L, I'll bring it to the score. And occasionally if there's a score interview that that we're never ever gonna rerun again. Like right now, like I want to get my Jeffrey Bear interview that I did on the score because I'm never going to run that again on the score. And I'm sure Mitch will be like, yeah, just take it and and turn it into an episode and just credit us with it. But that that ownership aspect of it, I think, is really key. And I'm glad that we're seeing people move in that direction of you can find a niche and you can create something. And that how good did that feel when you like got all the paperwork back on your LLC. Yeah. And what, I mean, the realization that I had to do it was like, you know, like, oh, oh, now we're talking about something else and I need to do something or the government will find me and kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Like I I need like to get to the point where I, I had no choice, but to do this, you know, when we started off talking about not really believing that I wrote a book, despite it like literally being in my hand, um, the proof of the podcast now is, is on paper there with the LLC and and the success of them. And, uh, that's, that's significant. Maybe that's what will make me feel like it's real is, uh, 
couple commas and zeros, you know? That would be great. Know. It helps. <laughs> I, I'm good with the one comma right now, and I can't. Yeah, I know like, that'll work. That one comma is, is not bad. Before I let you you out of this conversation, I've always thought that you were a really good, like genuinely good person. That being said, oh no, see, you think I'm getting ready to hit you with a swerve, but I'm not. I think that you being a father has amplified that. How do you think being a father has changed you? Um, probably in every way conceivable. I, I really, to summarize it, is difficult. I sort of think of my life as pre-Addy and post-Addy. And I don't really remember much of my life before her because it was so insignificant. Uh, not that my marriage was in, insignificant, but Hope and I building up to having Addy and now raising Addy, everything before her birth seemed so um, so much less. And I used to, this is a, the timing of Addy's birth is interesting. So Addy was born May 22nd, 2010. That was <laughs> the early morning after the Hawks had beaten the Sharks in game three. Dustin Bufflin won the game in overtime. And that kicked uh, Hope's labor into high gear. Hope had been in labor for like 18 hours at that point. Hawks win. They're a game away from going to the Stanley Cup final. And um, Addie's born. And up until that moment, I'd always thought about, boy, when the Hawks finally win a cup, I can't imagine what that's going to feel like for me. I'm going to be this ball. of I'll be crying. I'll be screaming and yelling, celebrating. And wow, what's it going to be like when that happens, right? And I, I thought about it similarly with the Cubs. That night, Addie's born. And the next day on the calendar, the 23rd, I believe, is the day the Hawks swept the Sharks to advance to the Cup Finals. And I'm holding Addie and, and Hope's in bed next to me. And Hope and I, like, our whole relationship was based on the Hawks. We started dating, going to games to see those crappy teams play. And we just kind of look at each other and it's like, cool. It was like, that's cool that that happened. That the Hawks are going to the cup final, but we're here with a human being that is ours that we made together, you know, and that needs that, us. Yeah. And it's the Hawks won the cup and it was like, that was awesome. Right. But there were nothing compares to having the unconditional love of a child and for a child, right? Like I, I, I imagined in my mind the moment, my whole life, of the Blackhawks winning the Stanley Cup. And while it was great, as soon as it happened, my daughter was two weeks old, and it was like the perspective had totally changed in two weeks. Right? Like, wow, that, oh, cool, the Hawks won. That's great. How about that? I never thought we'd see that. And, and I was overjoyed about it and still one of my favorite sports memories ever. But it's not one of my favorite life memories ever. I've got a hundred starring Addie and a hundred starring Hope that are ahead of hockey or baseball or whatever. So I think just the perspective having a child puts everything else in your life is significant. I think too, like even extending into my life outside of sports and work and all those things, it's you know the people that matter more. Right. Like you, you have less time for others when you're a parent. So you prioritize those people you want to spend time with. And that that time with them is more meaningful because it is rare and it's harder to find. So prioritizing 
who I'm going to see when that, that changed a lot too. So it made me sort of realize like who is important in my life and who's not, and maybe sources of stress before that I would worry about a lot. I just sort of let like kind of fade into the wind. Like, all right, well, we're going to grow apart. I'm going to allow that grow apart to happen because there's not enough positivity there for me and sort of eliminating that drama and stress from my life and focusing on what really matters and the people that truly care about me, that sort of changed everything. And, and like, it's going to sound savvy, but like you telling me I'm a good person is more meaningful than successful author, good producer, friend, whatever. Like that is my, if something is set on my gravestone, I want it to say he was a good man. That's all I care about. So thank you for that. You're welcome. One more thing about Addie. What's something that you think you learned from her? And I mean, not the experience of her. Yeah. From her. Boy, that's a good question. I I need to think about that one. It's. I mean, every day there's something, right? Like it's, it's almost like what not to do. Like there'll be those moments where, you know, me and Hope will approach a situation and we'll, all right, Addie, this is whatever. As vague as I want to make it. And she'll walk away and we'll be like, okay, next time we'll do something else. Next time. (laughs) (laughs) Like our hearts were in the right place, but it probably wasn't the right thing to do. You know, so I think it's, it's kind of the trial, trial and error. Like, oh, that's, uh, that's going to be at least four therapy lessons for her therapy sessions for her that we're, that we're going to be directly responsible for. But uh, no, I mean, it's just, I, I think that, perspective is, is is what's learned from her and she's um so all right now that i've had some time to think about it as a kid i was very uh i was driven by things like i wanted a toy or what you know as a child like i was very motivated by material things you wanted a transformer or gi joe yeah like that was to me it was like if, if I do, mom, if I paint the entire house, can I get this Nintendo game, right? Like, that was kind of how I operated. To a fault, Addie has no currency. Like, I've done such a good job of steering her away from being like me that she really doesn't care about anything that's not important. So she's started this um, planting business this summer because she was bored and she likes gardening and She's like, I'm going to put some flyers out. Hope put them out on Facebook and some people hired her. And I'm like, what are you going to buy with your, with the money you earned? She's like, oh, I'm going to donate it. Like what? Like what? how is, how is a 10 year old? Like for a 10 year old to say like, what do you mean? What am I going to buy? I'm I'm clearly donating this money to me. The 42 year old was like, what are you going to buy? What are you going to go get? Like what cool thing are you going to buy yourself? She's like, no dad. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to donate it. I'm donating it to the, she wasn't sure what to donate it to, but she donated it to the school district so they could buy supplies for kids who needed them for the school. Wonderful. It was $85, right? Who cares? But it's, it's 10 lunches or 20 lunches, or it's some notebooks for some kids or whatever. But she didn't even think like, you know, maybe it's a, a, a typical kid would, would say, I'm going to buy this. And a parent would say, well, why don't you think about donating it? And then the kid would do it. This was all her. 
you know, we're like, earn some money over the summer. You're bored. There's not a ton to do. This is something you could do to be away from people, distant, and still have some fun and still do some different stuff. And just on her own, she decided she wanted to donate it. And uh, that to me was just like, wow, she really is. Um, she's just, she's got like a really tender heart, you know, and she truly cares about other people. And part of me worries because I think her generation, like when I was 10, I know anything about politics, mm-hmm. right? Like the president, when I was 10, that would have been 87 would have been Reagan, right? Yep. Or, yeah. I'm like that Ronald Reagan's the president and he's important. That was the depth of my political knowledge. Kids now are more aware of politics than ever. And it's become kind of that way because it's so in your face. It's so polarizing. Everyone's talking about it all the time. But I think that that has taught her empathy at a mature level. Like she has been confronted with the struggle of people who are not like her Mm. way earlier than I have. And while we have to be careful to remind her, like, this is not your job to solve, like let adults handle adult things, but just know that these things people are telling you and showing you are real and that they matter and to be aware of them. And if you see things that are wrong to call them out, Right. I never had to deal with that pressure as a kid, but she has handled it with so much grace and so naturally. You know, when I see her speaking up for something that's not right, it's it amazes me because I'm like, when I was 10, I was an idiot. I'm still an idiot. Right. Like, but she is she has this level of awareness. For other people, I'm trying to think of um, there's this example that just happened. I'm trying to think of there was this family outside of uh, Portillo's by our house on Halstead there right off 294. Yeah. And it was like a mother and three kids and uh, they were asking for money and, and people were kind of, you know, some were helping, some were not. And, and Addie suggested like, why don't we give those clothes we were going to donate to that family? Like we had some bags of her old clothes that we'd packed up for her to think of that. Like, I think a lot of people, young white kids, when I was growing up, we would see poor people on the street and our instinct would be fear, not help. Right. And I think, I think that's taught. And if, and if I've done a good job of teaching her and, and I know hope's done a good job too, of teaching her to not fear people that are not like you and to uh, default to helping. I think that's, that's a huge success. And I know, I, I guess we should take credit for that, but a lot of it is all her man. Really? She's, she's remarkable. No, I it's think sometimes I want to, killer i think that you guys should absolutely take credit for it because you and hope are are good examples for her to follow and you you mean what you say and you 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 know you, you follow through on it and that's that's the example that that she has so i think it's it's wonderful and she's turned out to be a delightful person so and it's no surprise it's no surprise considering who her parents are i appreciate you spending as much time with me on this podcast as you did I appreciate having me. I'm glad uh, I was excited to do it. And uh, thanks for having me. I know we were waiting for the book to be closed. So uh, I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Good luck with the sales of the book, but I don't think you need it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? While I'm here, let me uh, let me let me let me say something. Uh, Bookies Bookstores is uh, 
a beloved place for me. There's one in Beverly Mount Greenwood, about 104th and Western-ish. Right around Sean's Rhino Bar, if you're familiar with that. They also just built one in Homewood on Ridge Road, uh, just west of Dixie Highway. And like many small businesses, they are getting hammered by the pandemic. Um, so if you are planning on ordering my book and you would like to support a local independent bookseller, you can go visit one of those Bookies locations or go to bookiesbookstores.com and order from there. It might cost you a couple more bucks than Amazon. It might get there a few days later, but know that it's helping a business that needs it, that's locally owned and operated, that employs local people and pays them well. Uh, and if those are out of reach for you, bookshop.org is a great website uh, that helps distribute money to independent booksellers with their sales. Um, Amazon does not need your money, but independent booksellers do. So whenever you have that opportunity, please do your best to support them. And one by you, Lawrence, maybe my favorite bookshop in the world, 57th Street Books on, oddly enough, 57th Street in Hyde Park. That place is like, you step in there and it's like a time time machine. It is. I love that place. You have to step oh. down into it and it just, yeah. it feels like a place where you can be with books. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, and you could, you could it's got a, a, like a feel of history in there. You know, there's definitely like a, there's an aura in that place. Probably just a ghost, but, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. you think of all the people that have been in that bookstore, you know, yeah. like, yeah, there's a, there's a tremendous history in that bookstore. It's that I had this moment. Um, I've joked about it on the podcast before. I think that you'll get a kick out of it. So before the, the pandemic, obviously I was going to work out at the university of Chicago gym this old guy at the gym and he's in his late eighties, but he, he gets there. I usually see him four or five times a week. He gets on the treadmill. He does his little thing and he loves to bust balls. And so I'm drawn to people like that. Like, I want to know what your story is. And we kind of became like friendly. Like what he busts my balls every morning when he see me at the gym. And we were talking, he gave me a, a book recommendation. And I said to him, I said, man, you know, I, I, I'd love to know more about you. And then he would tell me these, these stories here or there because he was clearly foreign. But I couldn't quite place where he was from, from his accent. At the University of Chicago, like everyone, you know, like right. it, it's a great melting pot of people from around the world. So we were talking about books and I just somehow like flippantly had been like, yeah, you know, like, have you ever been in a book? Like, like anyone ever, you know, talk to you about stuff? Ha 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 ha. And he, he goes, yeah, I, I'll bring you the book. And I was like, oh, okay. And <laughs> then he, he brings me the book. It's Mandela's book. Oh my God. And I was like, so wait, what now? Because this is a little white dude, right? Old white dude. And I go, um, why did you give me Mandela's book? And he goes, well, we were friends. And I was like, what? He's like, I was exiled from South Africa. And I was like, what? God, that's so what? cool. <laughs> and he tells me, he was a doctor. And he was like a doctor, like emeritus at U of C. And I said, why did you get exiled? Because with this guy, I have no idea because he's got a smart mouth. So I don't know what what it is that he did. He said that 
in South Africa at the time that he he had, he had become a doctor. That he was at a conference and they had black doctors and they had white doctors and the doctors because it was during apartheid he wasn't allowed to sit with the black doctors. He said that in South Africa during that time, the only place that you would see black people and white people together would be on the mountain ranges because the the ranges were so narrow, the paths were so narrow that they had to interact with each other. And if you read, you know, Trevor Noah was born a crime like this, it, it'll help like um, get you to understand. But he spoke out. He and some of his colleagues spoke out about this at the conference and he was jailed and exiled. They wow. sent him to Britain and he lived over there and he brought me a picture of it. I still have it. It's amazing. Like some of the stories that are just out there. Yeah. Like day. Th- this guy knew Mandela, man. Like, like <laughs> the guy you on the ch- your balls with him. But you knew you had you, you had a feeling about the guy, right? You meet people like that and you're like, there's something to you. There, there was definitely something to him, but I got to tell you, I wasn't expecting, hey, that, right? I, I wasn't expecting, oh, you were mentioned in Mandela's book. But, you know? Yeah. High he Park. Went, your balls are busted permanently. No doubt. High Park, <laughs> the only place where you could see someone. I saw this on, on Check, Please, and it was so on point. High Park is the only place where you can meet someone who created the atom bomb and someone who has a top 10 rap album. And they know each other like that's like the, the, the ultimate like Hyde Park thing. It's pretty amazing. Jay, thanks for doing this, man. I'm sorry I kept you so long. I got nothing going on. I'm bored. Thank you. <laughs> Be well, oh, sir. You too. That was dope. That was good. Thank you. Yeah, man. You? I'm going to put that is an hour and 30 hour about. 20, yeah. Great. It's good. You didn't reach Chris Tannehill land, which I think is the longest episode that was done in House of L history. But uh, this is really good. I'm going to put this out this week. Great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Let me know and I'll promote it accordingly. Yeah, I'll probably put it out. Connor just told me that he wants to do a baseball episode. So I'll probably put that out tonight and then. Yours will go out either Friday or Saturday because I don't want it to get lost in the wash with the Bears yeah. podcast. Cool. All right. Whenever. Thanks, Tell man. everyone I said hello. I will. All right, man. Later. See ya. There it is. Good stuff from Jay. I really am glad that he got to tell you about being a husband and a father because those are things that are really important to him. And I'm glad that he got to, to share that with you the name of the book the big 50 the men and moments that made the chicago blackhawks it's really fun when i get to see score guys and girls um expand on who they are and let you know that they've got talent beyond what you just hear on the microphones on the radio station and it's cool to to see everyone that all of us that like grew up together in the business literally grow up and do all these different things and exciting things. And this is something that Jay has wanted to do forever. And he got the opportunity to, to tell this story and he should be really proud and what he's trying to do for the local bookstores. I mean, 
at the end of that, when he's talking about Addie being selfless, I mean, it's pretty clear of where she got that from. Her parents. See? He could have just been like, oh, I'll just go get it from Amazon. Nope. He's telling you different bookstores to go get the book from. He's worked really hard, and he deserves all the success that is going to come with this book. It's weird because there's... I remember when Terry, because, you know, Terry was like slaving over his book for forever. It's like, oh, I'm going to write a book, buddy. I'm going to write a book. And then he wrote it and there was a lot of anticipation for his book. Terry actually did like four shows with me, which was crazy. Like just Mitch goes, hey, um, do you want to do like a book signing thing with Terry? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. And so he, I was doing these remotes and Terry would do the first hour with me and then he'd sign books for an hour and these lines would be long. And I thought that when we went to places like in Mokina and Frankfurt and stuff, like I thought that people would show up for that. We were out in East Bumble. I don't even know where we were, but it was like the Northwestern Burbs, places that you don't think that Terry has a lot of pull and we ended up in this restaurant where I think Terry ended up signing books for 90 minutes after he was done for, for the hour that he was doing the show. It was really incredible. And I feel like it's the same type of buzz for Jay's book. And there's a built-in audience. Like, there's a very passionate group of Blackhawks fans. And I think there are a lot of Jay Zawoski fans, too. And now they're going to have their opportunity to check out his book and read his stories. And I can tell you, I've seen some of it. You're going to enjoy it, and you're going to enjoy his style for sure. I really do like that. I mean, you start looking at that that cluster of people that were behind the scenes back then at the score and what everyone is doing now. And I guess this is, I mean, I, it's probably everyone has some story like this. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, but... For those of us that are in broadcasting and in radio in particular, it's cool to see that. Like, I, I even think back to, I did Channel 9 this past week. Like, I was on talking about the Bears with Lauren Jiggetts. And when I started at the score, Lauren was in high school. You know what I'm saying? Like, and now she's one of the most respected anchors in Chicago and the whole thing's crazy like I was her dad's producer (laughs) it's it's really really bizarre really bizarre but in a good way you know in a really wonderful way to tell you the truth and I know that this was a an extra long episode of the podcast but you all don't seem to mind that and I'm good with that too I like when I don't feel like I'm up against it. And like Jay was talking about how with radio, there is that, well, we're getting close to a break and it can sometimes mess up the rhythm of a conversation. Takes a lot of concentration to stay in something like that when you have to take a break. It's one of the reasons that I prefer long form interviews be done in the pod Because even if the guest wasn't planning on talking to you for 30 minutes, 
sometimes they'll they'll lose themselves in the conversation and it won't seem like a 30 minute interview. The pod keeps growing. We had a record setting September. I don't think that we'll reach that number that we did in September and October just because the volume of episodes is not going to be as much because there was all sorts of stuff that was like getting in the way of that, like moving, for example, and not having Wi-Fi. But big thanks to to Connor and Joe for all the work that they did on the Baseball From Home podcast throughout the season. Really, really tremendous. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I haven't even talked with Connor about this. I feel like they're ready to just kind of do their own thing if they want, build their own brand. I'd love to keep them inside House of L, but I think that they could – both those guys are really smart. Like, if they want to just build – the BFH on some other platform, they could 100% do it. But I'm sure Connor and I will have that conversation and we'll figure it out. So go buy Jay's book. You'll enjoy it for sure. Thanks for your support of everything that we do here on the podcast. We'll have, uh, man, I got some, some interviews lined up that you're going to love and some episodes that are coming up that you're going to love. And some ideas that I need to get jumping on. Some people that I want to get on the podcast that I have not yet. But I promise you, I will. I'll talk to you next time. Peace. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.